Welcome to the Dividend Cafe, financial food for thought. Hello and welcome to this Dividend Cafe episode featuring our entire investment committee. This is David Bonson. I'm the Chief Investment Officer and I'm surrounded by my friends and colleagues, Brian Seitel. Brian, how you doing? Doing great, thank you. Julian, how you doing? Good, thank you, David. Julian, of course, being our uh, Director of Equity Research, joined the Bonson Group a few months ago, and uh, we're all having a lot of fun doing these podcasts together. And I guess it's for a lot of you, maybe your first chance to get exposed to Julian. Uh, but then you have our long timers still to go with Dea Pernas. How you doing, Dea? Great. These podcasts are a lot of fun. Looking forward to this one. Robert Graham. Doing well. How are you, David? I'm wonderful. Guys, it's a weird week. No volatility anymore. It's so boring in the market. <laughs> the first time we've had this without a 400-point move one way or the other. Yeah. yeah. So uh, what were we up yesterday? About 100 points. And then I think today we're flat. We've been going back and forth between up 20 and down 20 most of the morning. You know, I'm up real early. The futures market, we're kind of pointing to the same thing. We actually went down a little bit at one point. But anyways... We're not going to talk about uh, the market, what it's doing this week, and what Trump's tweeting, and what uh, he actually right now focuses off trade war. He fired um, uh, Ambassador John Bolton yep, from National yep. Security Advisor position this morning. Uh, so uh, there's more foreign policy stuff kind of going on uh, in the in the White House than there is right now economic type issues. So we'll give you a reprieve from politics. <laughs> And we want to actually um, focus today on a more topical basis, and we're going to do more and more of these, let the investment committee come in week by week, usually at the beginning of the week, and try to address a given topic that we think will be informative to our listeners, and especially those listeners who are clients. We, we like all the listeners, but we really like the listeners who are clients of ours best uh, for rather obvious reasons. But here's the thing. Um, it's difficult to pick topics week by week because we don't necessarily know what's on your mind. And so if you have particular suggestions um, and one of them is not, hey, tell us what you think of cryptocurrency, then we're really open to your suggestions and will actually help drive a lot of the different things the investment committee would love to sit around this table and discuss for your listening pleasure. I joke about the cryptocurrency side. Maybe we will do one someday, but I doubt it. But I make the joke because that is the type of question we <laughs> have gotten so often. <laughs> but no, I mean, more or less, uh, every, outside of Bitcoin, everything's fair game. And then, of course, the regular Dividend Cafe podcast near the end of the week where I'm trying to summarize that weekly commentary and what took place in the market that week and things of that nature. We want to keep that going as well. So if you're getting about two podcasts a week from us, one with the whole investment committee and one with just me, that's more or less the intention. But, uh, you know, some weeks it's going to get a little uh, funkier just as far as scheduling and markets and different things that happen. So we'll do our best to make it work. Luckily, these four guys are very flexible. Um, all right. Our topic this week. Strategic allocation versus tactical allocation, the pros and cons of both, the differences of both. What does it mean for clients to have their portfolio asset allocated on a strategic basis and versus having it allocated on a tactical basis? And Dale, why don't I just cheat right off the top and say, what does it look like to have a blend of the two? which is what I really kind of think we do at the Bonson Group. Absolutely. But I'm going to sort of bury the lead a little, or not bury the lead, reveal the lead. Mm -hmm. What are you supposed <laughs> to say there? Yeah. Uh, I gave it away? Yeah. Front run? I don't know. Yeah. Uh, front yeah. run. There yeah. you go. Yeah. 
Um, so there is sort of a hybrid explanation we'll be unpacking for you as a, as a group here. Um, in the most simplest of senses, Robert, why don't you provide the vocabulary for the listeners as to what it means that one would be strategically allocated versus tactically allocated? And for now, we'll presuppose those two things as being distinct from one another. Sure. So starting with strategic, what we do and what I think many practitioners in the space do is we take a look at long-term risk and reward characteristics of different asset classes. So bonds, equities, um, alternatives, uh, those types of things. And we say, okay, for each each client or strategically within our specific portfolios, what is the right mix or proportion of those asset classes to each other? Okay. And those are going to create maybe a center point, And then we have bandwidths around it as well. Tactical is a little bit different because a tactical asset allocation allows you to express a view or an opinion on a somewhat shorter time horizon. There's both, uh, you know, asset class tactical decisions. There's also sector uh, decisions as well on a tactical basis. Uh, we tend to do a lot more of the asset class um, tactical rotations than we do the sector rotations by nature of us being bottom-up managers. And so in terms of the broad asset classes, we're talking about stocks, bonds, uh, cash, theoretically, That's right. and then alternatives. That's right. And a uh, long time, well, even short time listeners know, we use the word alternatives to describe things that receive their risk and their reward from something alternate to the stock and bond traditional assets. So then you have sub-asset classes within those different things. Is strategic allocation the same as buy and hold, Brian? Um, no, not buy and hold. I mean, strategic allocation, like Robert said, it's based around a certain level of risk for that particular client and a certain goal for that client. And then a percentage of stocks to bonds to alternatives and cash is sort of selected. It's more buy and hold than tactical, but it's not buy and hold in the sense that you are going to have to rebalance that every period of time, whether it's quarterly or annual. Uh, originally, when we got in the business, there was qu quarterly was sort of the 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 new thing and and i think that's a little too much but um but yeah so so essentially you've got let's say an average person 40 percent in bonds you know 40 percent in stocks 20 percent in alternatives stocks were to outperform you'd want to rebalance and take some of the some of the gains out of the stocks and then position in the other asset classes to kind of keep those percentages in line so it's not so much buy and hold it's sort of buy and hold with the rebalance type of type of approach so the, your summary there is helpful. It is buy and hold with a rebalance component, mm -hmm. and the but but if what was the strategic allocation in the hypothetical you used? Just like so a we, forty forty twenty. Okay, so someone has forty percent stocks, forty percent bonds, twenty percent alternatives. They're going to stay in that allocation throughout their investing life, in theory. Yeah. But they'll just simply rebalance back to it. Yeah, that doesn't mean inside of those asset classes there aren't things going on. You know, 40% stocks is pretty broad. You, know, you may have large, mid, small cap, different sectors and different things going on, different things moving in the portfolio. So there's, there's activity there. Right. But as far as the actual strategic allocation, you sort of have set it around usually a financial plan and usually sort of a broad goal and risk tolerance for the client. Um, and to your <laughs> front run comment, but what we do, you know, is a little different. I mean, we're not going to be strategic allocation um, investors solely. We're going to be kind of a tactical overlay. So the way I would describe it is something like strategic asset allocators with a tactical overlay based on valuations. Mm -hmm. And so when you look at valuations of stocks versus bonds, we'll have a bandwidth to kind of maneuver and massage what we feel is appropriate, giving the risk of the client. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I'm gonna. I want to hold off on a question. I'm excited to talk to Julian about with tactical, but let me. But it sounds like Dea that not all strategic allocation is created equal either. That there. That okay. So this, would this count as strategic allocation? 
uh, the answer is going to be yes. But what you're saying is this yes. is what I'm about to say is not the only thing that could count as strategic allocation. And and it would be uh, you have 40, 40, 20. But within that, you set your strategic that of that 40 in stocks, 75 percent is U.S. large cap, 15 percent international, 10 percent small cap. And if you don't alter those numbers at the sub asset mm-hmm. class level, that's also strategic allocation. Sure, sure. And then you could have different breakdowns within your bond allocation of treasury bonds, government bonds, things like that, yeah. and with alternatives. But what you're saying is you could theoretically be um, alternating the sub asset classes, but keep staying strategic on the top down mm-hmm. of uh, stock bond, gen- more generally speaking. Sure. So, Dea, right now in the world of, of passive investing, and the world of robo, which is essentially um, building a strategic allocation algor- and then letting it mm-hmm. sort of run its course algorithmically, um, what it, it, if you're altering at the sub level, isn't that a form of tactical allocation? Uh, so an acknowledgement that some human intervention is theoretically a value added to the portfolio result. Right. So I think it's important to realize that a majority of the returns in the portfolio will be from the broad asset allocations. And if you look at the studies, I think it's over 85, 85% or something Brinson like that. Brinson Partners study in 1991 right. that UBS, yeah. Brinson was bought by UBS, right. was 91%. Right, yeah. So yeah, if you look at those Brinson studies, that'll show you an overwhelming portion uh, of that return is as a result of the broad asset allocation. Uh, sure, I think there there's layers and uh, there of, of strate- as far as you can be strategic at the top down, but then you can say you're tactical at the sub asset class level. But I I'm not sure I, I that's not something that we would consider uh, tactical. That's something I think that's more marketing than anything else. I don't I don't know what I, I guess not, I'm trying to get to why would someone be in favor of strategic allocation? The hmm. argument for strate- strategic allocation is that. Human intervention is going to do more harm than good. You just want to set your broad asset classes that are in line with the risk-reward Robert talked about, a client's given risk profile. That's going to kind of dictate their overall um, portfolio composition, Mm -hmm. and you're best to let that roll. And then to Brian's point, you can still rebalance, although even a a strategic allocator would admit rebalancing is more about risk management Mm -hmm. than performance addition. Absolutely. But but then say I really believe in this top down, but then I'll make an exception, one level below it. Like in other words, if human intervention is negative, why is it okay to say I want my seventy five twenty five U.S. international to go to sixty five thirty five, but it's not okay to say I want my forty forty stock bond to go to fifty thirty? Yeah, yeah. So that's that's not something that makes sense to me. I assume that. Uh, Does anyone else want to defend it? Right. Yeah. Keep going. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So as far as as far as saying that uh, there's some sort of magical uh, 40, 40, 20 or whatever it is that is going to be good for the lifetime of the client, uh, and I assume that they're just looking at historical data and using that historical data as gospel, and yep. uh, and not making any sort of adjustments, but but they have some sort of forward-looking opinions for the sub-asset classes. I, I, it's very hard for me to reconcile those two things. Yeah, they do. But again, in fairness to those that set these kind of automated programs, they have forward-looking projections on the asset class that are entirely driven by the backward-looking performance. It's essentially sure, historical sure. averages. Right. Well, well I mean, um, not, not just purely extrapolating from the historical, uh, historical trend line and making some sort of projection in the future. 
I mean, uh, realizing that there's certain things that are might be different and might affect uh, expectations going forward and adjusting your asset allocation that way, uh, which I assume maybe they're not doing for, sub, uh, for the sub-asset classes. I'm not sure what those robo advisors are doing. And but, even uh, apart from the robos and so forth, which I don't think a lot of really high net worth and sophisticated investors are embracing, but for smaller investors that they're really selling the concept of automation, I, I think that that plays. But even just the TAMP world in general. So yeah. a turnkey asset management program is something we don't do at the Bonson Group, but something that's become very popular. Uh, you get to charge fees and not have to manage the money. And it's really attractive to a lot of financial practitioners. And and so even apart from robo, which which you and I might sometimes use that derogatory, mm. but I think that it really applies to the TAMP world overall. And, and to me, I guess I'm trying to point to a potentially internal contradiction for strategic allocation people that would say it's not a good idea to strategic allocate at level one, but it is at level two. But now I'm going to open up the same can of worms on the tactical side. Okay. So Julian comes from uh, various uh, handful of hedge funds he's worked at throughout his investment career. And some of, some of them that you particularly worked at, even though you were a fundamental equity guy, but some of them were very known for being tactical, not just that they might one year say we really like 55 stocks and the next year 50% stocks, but they might at 10 in the morning like a given name and at 10.03 in the morning not like the name. So, so just as much as strategic people can be really extreme out here, tactical, once, once, let's say Brian's on my side here and we go, hey, we believe human intervention can be value additive in a portfolio. Why stop it quarterly or sure. yearly? Why not go minute by minute like our old friends at blank? I can't say the name. You guys can look <laughs> up Julian's bio if you want to know where he's to work. Yeah. Look, I think it's um, it's uh, human nature that um, you know you, you might have your long-term uh, uh, investment goals, but we look at the market every day and we see opportunities every day, and so uh, it's your turn to uh, to want to intervene and and tactically position your portfolio for the opportunities you see in front of you. So you have, you know, you have mean reversion, and that's one thing that uh, we, you know you should we should mention. Ex maybe explain the concept well, of mean the, reversion. The concept of mean reversion is like asset classes. You know, they tend to move together, but there will be some moments where you know, like now, you could say equities look very relatively cheap compared to to bonds. You know, when you can make uh, a yield that's higher in the um, in the S and P that you can make on a ten year. So that would be like somebody who was tactical would say maybe now is a good time to go a, a bit more uh, into equities and a bit less into bonds. And uh, that's at the, you know, at the asset class level. If you go into more like detail level and then go into equities, you could say now maybe it's a good time to go into financials and a bit less into, um, into um, you know, consumer uh, staples that have done so well. And then if you go at the stock level, like, uh, like we do, um, you could say, well, this huge ABC versus yeah, ABC, XYZ. Yeah, <laughs> you could say this company just uh, was going to do a huge deal and they were going to pay a lot of money uh, to buy, you know, and then then someone came in and wanted to fight with them and, and instead of overpaying, they walk away and they're doing more buybacks, uh, they're doing paying more dividends. And so that sounds like a, a nice, you know, uh, nice time to buy, uh, to own a bit more of that company. So that would be a, an exa another example of tactical. And that's, some, you know, I guess okay, we look so, at all. So those are all examples of good tactical. Yeah. But what's an example of bad tactical? Well, I guess uh, the example of bad tactical is, uh, you know, um, that you you think you're doing the right uh, you, you know you're doing the right move and the market is, that doesn't agree with you and I guess that's probably what and the difficulty is that there's so much money that's passive at the moment 
that you know the active managers have been for some reason underperforming because because um, because they are I guess investing against uh, the flows. Uh, and well, so and also you have a market that has been uh, had a lot of tailwinds. Mm -hmm. um, where you generally see active do much better during more challenged markets, flat markets. But when you have a straight line bull market, much like the post-crisis yeah, era, exactly. it changes things. So, Robert, here, here, here's what I'm hearing so far. And, and, and tell me if this is a fair summary that uh, a little um, – like so many things in life, uh, there can be something that is okay at a certain magnitude, a certain measure – but then too much of it can become a negative. So some tactical allocation around uh, economic viewpoint of uh, uh, sector valuation, uh, an economic viewpoint around um, opportunity, uh, reacting to the trade war, things like that, there's a room for it, but then you can go too much tactical to where uh, effectively day trading is an example, an extreme example, you stack the odds against you. You open up for more opportunity for human error. Absolutely. So I, I think expanding the definition of tactical to being opportunistic around value is, is a good place to start there. Uh, and that's a lot of times what we do. As I mentioned before, we're, we're bottom up. So to some extent, we have to be agnostic as to top-down sectors. That's where I see a lot of the danger in when retail investors hear tactical, you know, this or that. When they hear a talking head talk about, hey, overweight this, underweight that. And then they go into a biotech ETF and their 401k get blown out. So I think the, uh, the the environment in which you're discussing these things is extremely important. And just to reiterate, not not playing on sectors from a tactical perspective. That's okay sometimes to look at how you know financials or healthcare utilities are doing on a broad level. But to some extent, we don't necessarily care about that because we're looking at individual companies. And how how efficient do we think the markets are? Do we think that there's mispricing here and there? Sometimes I do. Yeah, and so can you be strategic in the percentage of equities you're going to have, but tactical or active, uh, engaged in the what equities you're going to own within it, which is, of course, absolutely uh, in a sense what we do. But then that other layer of tactical is not just that we may say we like ABC mm -hmm. and now we want to trim XYZ. That's tactical intervention in a portfolio, but it's it driven by bottom up decision making because mm -hmm. we're dividend growth evangelists. But sometimes we might say to that 40, 40, 20 client, Brian, we think going into this next year, 50, 30, 20 is a better mm -hmm. allocation. Mm -hmm. You could even say 50, 30, 30, but then, you yeah. know, who's going to trust little you little with leverage, money? A little <laughs> leverage in there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, and that's the thing. I, you know, and what we do is manage money for people. And so we're not running a hedge fund. This isn't an institution. There isn't sort of a, a one account with a pool of money that we can, you know, play the market and so on. And so, you know, this is there's individual people. So everybody has their own goals their own risk tolerance. It's very custom. It's very bespoke. And um, as far as the, the difference between the two, yes, we're setting a strategic allocation based on the initial conversation and the goals. But as David just said, I mean, as markets change, you know, negative interest rates around the world, rates are moving lower, earnings are good or bad, so on and so forth, we may increase or decrease in equity allocation based on what we think of the world. And it's not that we're going all in and then all out of something. It's that something may be instead of a 40-40-20, you know, a 60-40 or 60-30-10 or yeah. I can, get, I can go, go. I can go on and on and on <laughs> with the uh, percentages there. But All those numbers can change. Yeah. There's so yeah. many possibilities. There's so many. But I think, I think that um, it's helpful philosophically to start with what people mean by the terms and then show how even they usually don't fully mean it. Okay, so I would define when I said hybrid, 
that we are strategic dash tactical, that we start with a framework, but it's a bandwidth, not a hard number. And yet there is a given client that once we've profiled them as a person, that with the specific human needs and timelines and liquidities and, and, and tax ramifications, that we may say the appropriate bandwidth for their equity allocation could be on the low side 35 mm -hmm. and on the high side 50. So you have a strategic uh, window, but then you have tactical setting based on market outlook, valuations, exactly. mean reversions, things of that nature. Then within that, you allow for bottom-up selection, things of that nature. So, so one of the reasons I'm defensive of the Bonson Group's approach to this is because I don't think we're guilty of any uh, contradiction. I think that the strategic people are all full of it. They're all full of it. They all end up allowing for some human decision at some point, some less so than others. But there was a guy, it was actually funny, he worked at the company that became, that Brinson Partners became much later. I heard him speak once at a, a investment conference I was at, and he said, uh, studies show that 50% of arranged marriages end in divorce, and 50% right now in our society of all marriages end in divorce. So one could look at that and determine, I have no better chance of making my marriage work by uh, act of, like actually dating the person I choose to marry versus just having it arranged for me, so I may as well not try. And yet most people probably would say, nah, like, yeah, I guess supposedly, and it's very sad, but if 50% of marriages end in divorce, I think most people would still say, I'm going to try to like make sure that there's some common ground and, and compatibility. And, and so from a portfolio standpoint, it strikes me that like to Julian's point earlier, someone could be looking at certain things and say, I refuse to act on this information. Can you imagine setting a 30-year strategic expectation for bonds 30 years ago and right now saying, no, it's the same. I have the same expectation for bonds in the next 30 years. When yields are below inflation? Yeah, yeah. well, the, 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 so 30 years ago, the 30-year was trading 18%. Yeah. It's right now trading at 2%. And you're expecting the same asset class return. Yet once you say, no, you know what, once I adjust for the inflation differences and yield differences, we're going to adjust our expectation and our weightings. Well, guess what? You just became tactical. Exactly. So there's, there, you see my point? There's, there's, range, there's differences, uh, there's bandwidth that both sides will have. And the reason I brought you in, Julian, is I think that a lot of the active trading-oriented hedge funds, first of all, they're not doing it for people. They're doing it in a more abstract. But secondly, it represents an extreme version day-to-day -day trading of the same thing. So I'm willing to say that once I go tactical, even I have a limit to it. I, I want to be tactical around bandwidths that were set strategically. Mm -hmm. I was going to say, yeah, you, you, I mean, I guess we are strategic. I mean, the way, I think the right way to, to do it is to be strategic with tactical on the margin, basically. That's right. Yeah. It's, it's not Valuation-based. Like, mm -hmm. and, and if tactical becomes uh, your, your main uh, you know, strategy or the way you basically you run the business, you can be completely uh, upside down the other way around, you know, like uh, there's a lot of... Uh, that hedge fund in the, in the graveyard who, who called the, you know, say this is the time to be short the market, this is over, bull market is over, and, and you're out of business in, in a year or two, you know? So is that is that a, a good segue to, the what's the difference between tactical allocation and market timing? Is the bandwidth the, as a governor the key differential? So, so as far as tactical allocation and market timing goes, and I'm, I'm really glad we're having this discussion, and it strikes me that... Uh, 
all these terms get thrown around in our industry and it's so common but there's actually a, there's so much to the definition and the different ways one one can see one versus the other but not fully understand what it means to be strategic and what it means to be tactical so yeah I, just, just to zoom out a little bit i'm really glad we're having a discussion as far as mar market timing look i mean i i assume there's somebody out there who could have some sort of algorithm around market timing and say there's super tactical and sure they're not they're not setting a percentage and they're not keeping it that way and i guess that falls under the definition but i wouldn't consider that uh, a viable uh, tactical allocation strategy i mean our, our tactical allocation strategy as brian mentioned is valuation driven uh you know it's not something where we look at a trend line and uh the 50-day crosses the 250-day, mm -hmm. and now it's time to go 40% the other way. You know, so so uh, for us, tactical means valuation-driven. We're we're doing the fundamental work on the asset class. We're tr we're reconciling the historical data with forward-looking expectations and making a decision. Yeah. So I um I think this is really helpful. It's not only kind of hopefully useful for some of the people listening right now, but I think it's a fun conversation that that we get to have. I, you know, we um, it's important that we frame this, and all of us philosophically have adopted um, this notion of behavioral decision-making as a real key driver in the ultimate outcome that an investor will get. I um, am fervent in my belief that we owe it to our clients to try this sort of marginal tactical intervention around strategic parameters that the top-down asset allocation matters primarily the bottom-up selection has to feed a result. We can manage risk and drive returns. We're dividend growth people. And yet at the end of the day, there's nothing that will deliver a better return through time than the investor's behavior and nothing that will undermine through time uh, the, the result more than the investor's behavior. Robert, do you think that that behavioral thinking is compatible with this sort of strategic tactical hybrid? I, I do, and I think uh, us being kind of the insulator between uh, the client and what they're being told or, or shown elsewhere is uh, is really important and integral to that, certainly. Um, the, the bandwidths that we put on it, I think Dea was maybe getting this, and I just wanted to touch on it as well on something you said. The, the, the bridge between the strategic and the tactical, the, the bandwidths we have around certain you know sectors or, or asset classes and the ability to float within that, it's a, it's a very risk-first Type of mm -hmm. of constraint, and I think that's where that's a good point. we even uh, control our own uh, bad tendencies, sure. few as they may be. Yeah, sure. and, and can I add to that real quick? As far as the approaching the portfolio management from the risk side first, uh, I th I think is something that is hugely important. And also, w if somebody's super tactical and they're making I don't know ten decisions a day, like how much actual thought is going into those decisions? How much? How much? How how deliberative? Uh, right. Yeah, how, yeah. how much conviction can they actually have? I, it's difficult to make uh, good decisions in our business. There's a lot of information floating out there. You all you always have to look behind the statistic to get the right interpretation. So to build up that amount of conviction takes uh, takes some thought, takes a good process, and can take a little bit of time. So I, I'm very skeptical of people that are able to make decisions with that rapidity. And so. th those convictions are based around 10, 12 different data yeah. points of the yeah. reasons why we are highly convicted in a certain position or, or or allocation and to have, like you said, I mean, if you're changing that daily, then it can't be based on 10 different factors. You're right. basing it on something that must change at a whim, and how would you invest that way? You exactly, know? yeah. 
So yeah, I guess the mandate is so different. I think that's really the, we have very different mandate from, you know, being, if you're a hedge fund manager, your mandate is to generate monthly returns. So the way you look at it is first of the month, you start at zero and you have to make money that month. You, if you have some PNL, you take more risk. If you're starting to lose money, you cut risk, regardless of what, uh, what's happening out there. And you're really short term uh, because people pay you for, sh uh, you know, volatility, low volatility, short term performance. We're investing for. But what if Julia? What if Mr. and Mrs. Smith uh, say, "No, no, no, that's the same thing I want from from you guys." In other words, is that difference as profound as Brian and I are suggesting that you're bringing up now? That uh, when one is managing money just in the abstract for the performance of a fund and not with a given individual goal attachment for Smith sure. and yeah. Jones and mm -hmm. Johnson, would. Um, uh, wouldn't you, someone be able to say, look, that's what I want as well as just month by month good return? What would be the distinction? Well, I guess it, again, depends on the mandate uh, and the objective of the client. But uh, if you if the client has, you know, money with us that's invested for the long term, that would be our job to, co to explain to them that they have to accept the volatility of the market. They have to accept, uh, you know, our or recommendation in terms of asset allocation because we know from history and we know from uh, uh, investing, uh, you know, uh, uh, market efficiency that the, this is the way to generate returns over the long term, not being 100% in alternatives that are going to have lower returns with lower volatility. So you have to accept the volatility to get the returns. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think I think that's one of the advantages of our strategic tactical sort of hybrid is that there's a lot of honesty embedded in it. Because I think that a real purist of tactical allocation that was anti-strategic, and I'm all in for tactical, and you'll see some of these kind of strategies that they'll brag about how we'll go to 0% equity and we'll come back in. And they're giving an impression that, you're, that the value proposition is our ability to know when to be in the market, when to be out of the market. So then they'll be out of the market in a period where it runs up a lot. And then it's just like, okay, well, we, we missed that one. We move on to the next and and it's feeding this sort of narrative that that someone can do that. Right. Where what we're saying is, you know why if we were as bearish as we've ever been, go back to the way you and I felt, Brian, in the financial crisis, mm. and and there was just absolutely no thought in my head that well this thing should be done in a day or two. Yeah. Yeah. Like it was clear that we were going through a paradigmatic shift in the American economy. And yet, even then, we didn't want to go to 0% equity. Absolutely not. Because of the humility that it says, look, I don't know when there's going to be a thousand point up day. And we had those. Yeah, we, we had did. these last December. Absolutely. And yeah. missing yeah. those days. Talk maybe a little bit about that. No, right? I mean, that, and that's the, you know, both of what we're talking about, whether it's strategic asset allocation, um, tactical asset allocation, they're both sort of from this modern portfolio theory. And it's regarding that you know, there's a certain amount of risk that you take with each asset class, and there's a certain amount of reward that you would get from each asset class. And um, I think it's um, you know, financial malpractice to really try to pick which one of those is going to be that asset class for the next 30 days or six months or whatever it's going to be. And, and really, let alone with your own money, but with other people's money, try to, pr try to guess that because that's rooted in some sort of crystal ball, and, and nobody has that. And yeah. so you know, our job with this is both on the strategic and the tactical, is to set the allocation based around the client's goals, to have bandwidth so that we can massage that portfolio as valuations change and we take advantage of it, uh, but to never lose sight that, to David's point in the 08 crisis, 
that we don't have a crystal ball. And so I'm not going to ever be out of com an asset class completely, um, uh, like a stock or a bond type of thing. We could go low to cash or low to alternative, something like that. But the point just being that it's rooted in fundamental belief uh, that, you know, th that's based on fundamentals of companies and investments based on valuations, not yeah. just trying to predict, you know, the future of the world. Well, well said, like you said, humility, it's based on humility. There's yeah. an no matter how smart you think you are, uh, you are a human being and you can be wrong just like anybody else. And there's an irreducible level of uncertainty as far as uh, the range of outcomes that are possible. And you wanna make sure that you are preparing the client for uh, multiple scenarios and not, not just be a single scenario thinker. Like this, uh, equities are gonna do this and I know it's true uh, yeah. because uh, because I read all, I read hundreds of pages of research. I mean, you could argue, and I don't wanna get like overly weird about it, but you could argue there's a lot of parallels to the way people ought to live their lives in general. That there's always this sort of needed hybrid of humility and confidence, you mm -hmm. know? Right. You have conviction, but you, ha yeah. you temper it with some modesty. And I think uh, you and, and Brian have done a lot of these hedge fund um, visits over the years with me. We're in New York. We meet with people. And, and Julian, coming from the space, I bet you could tell us horror stories. But sometimes you meet with a hedge fund, and my immediate response is they, ha they don't respect markets. Mm -hmm. they, they have so, they're so smart, and they have so much conviction and confidence in what they have conviction in, but they're, they're unaware that they can, or they just don't care. That they could get their face ripped off yeah. if they, if they have something sort of wrong. Where I think strategic allocation is a way to force your high conviction to stay within a paradigm of not blowing somebody up. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Um, I didn't get much response from you guys on the the dating analogy. Did you think that worked about fixed <laughs> marriages? <laughs> That's the first time I've heard it. I liked it. I liked it because it, it perfectly illustrates. The uh, well, you should just be sixty forty equities. Yeah. Um, well, it's like wait, but shouldn't we try to understand why? Or and times have changed. Else? Yeah, and times have huge paradigm shifts can happen. Yeah. You know, with with bonds yeah. and different different yeah. asset classes. If it was so. any more than fifty fifty, I'll ask for a refund and There's always leverage. you could go somewhere we with could this come analogy. Up. Yeah. <laughs> Um, well, Robert, do you have anything you want to add to the subject? Uh, why don't we all do a little closing thought, and then I'll take us home. No, I, I love uh, Dea's talk a little bit about humility, um, and being somewhat rules-based is, uh, is a great way to start with that. Yep. Dea? Uh, yeah, it's a discussion I'm really glad we had. Uh, asset allocation, that as much as somebody might label it passive or active, there's a decision always being made, and there needs to be uh, the right kind of thinking behind those decisions. I think that was really interesting topic, and it's funny because uh, you know I was I was studying for the sixty-five, and it was you know one of the things you you learn or you, you read. I mean, I knew about, but like you read again a lot. And uh, but I think at the end of the day, it's not one or the other. It's we have to be strategic, and on the margin, why not be tactical as well? Mm -hmm. I would say that at the end of everything that we've discussed, which I've really enjoyed, it's uh, just about the client. So everything that we do is not done in a vacuum. We're focused on individual people and what their individual goals are and, and what they're trying to accomplish in life. And we're privileged to be a steward of capital to do that. And these decisions, strategic and tactical, are because we care and we love what we do, obviously. But it's about clients first. And I uh, echo everything all of you guys have said. It's nice that our partnership involves so much uh, common ground. Of course, it's not coincidental. It's the, uh, we don't uh, find common ground out of our partnership. We found our partnership out of our common ground. And so we see these things the same way ideologically, economically, 
But I think also the the priority about it being around the client, that there is a sense in which um, academically, the notion of just sort of managing money disattached from a goal, a timeline, and a human is a fundamentally different thing than managing money attached to investor psychology and, and dynamism. Uh, life changes, unexpected inflows and unexpected outflows, right? I mean, uh, you know, we talk about divorce. Like, I hear that could be a big outflow. I don't, I don't intend to find out. But, um, Julian, I hope you're listening. But it, here's the thing. <laughs> here's the thing. Strategic allocation, uh, Dave made this point earlier, and I want to sum it up with this. A lot of the vocabulary you hear, they're media-driven simplicities that are unhelpful to framing how you think about your own portfolio. Your portfolio is not binary, like, oh, I do active or I do passive or I do strategic or I do tactical. It's dynamic in the sense that it needs to be customized to your specific situation. But at the beginning of the process is the pursuit of a return that is a premium to what you could get by hiding money under the mattress. If everybody's financial goals could always be achieved by hiding money under the mattress, there would be no need to pursue risk premia. It is the pursuit of a return that, as Julian pointed out, if we ever tell you we can get you a premium return and we will not add any additional risk to do it, we are lying to you. Now, we're never going to say it, but other people not only will, they do it. They say it all the time. And our job is to not only offer something different, it's to constantly bat down these charlatans that I think are doing significant damage at eroding the wealth of American investors. Risk-free returns at a premium to mattress money don't exist. Mm -hmm. So how we go about pursuing that for a given client is, is the subject we've been talking about today. Some of it, don't, don't worry if you missed a bit of it. I know we go into our jargon and vocabulary, but those of you that stuck with this whole podcast, we appreciate it. Uh, we hope you've got some out of it. We really do welcome your uh, questions. Uh, we've been getting more people that have emailed in with different questions and comments. We appreciate it. And I'm going to reiterate the offer I made. Thank you to those of you that took us up on it last week and, and your books have been sent. But if you'd like a copy of our um, uh, case for dividend growth and write a review at whatever your podcast player of choice is, uh, send that to us with your address, and we will get you a copy of the book on us. Thank you for listening to this week's Divin Cafe. Thank you to my investment committee colleagues here at the Bonson Group, and we look forward to another fun conversation for you next week at the Dividend Cafe. Thank you for listening to the Dividend Cafe, financial food for thought. Bonson Group is registered with Hightower Securities LLC, member of FINRA and SIPC, and with Hightower Advisors LLC, a registered investment advisor with the SEC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities LLC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors LLC. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities. No investment process is free of risk, and there's no guarantee that the investment process or the investment opportunities referenced here will be profitable. Past performance is not indicative of current or future performance is not a guarantee. The investment opportunities referenced herein may not be suitable for all investors. All data and information referenced herein are from sources believed to be reliable. Any opinion, news, research, analyses, prices, and other 
other information contained in this research is provided as general market commentary. It does not constitute investment advice. The team in Hightower should not be in any way liable for claims and make no express or implied representations or warranties as to the accuracy or completeness of the data and other information or for statements or errors contained in or omissions from the obtained data and information reference herein. The data and information are provided as of the date referenced. Such data and information are subject to change without notice. This document was created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed solely those of the team who do not represent those of Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates.